Today we will take a look at Exodus chapter 20. So please go ahead and open your Bibles up there. Again, for those of you listening via the internet, welcome. We'd love to hear from you. You can contact us via mail at Abounding Love, P.O. Box 428, Higley, Arizona 85236. And you can reach me via email at pastordave at aloveoutreach.com. So as we left off in chapter 19, Moses had been up on the mountain of God where the Lord spoke to him by voice. And while the Lord God was speaking to Moses, all the people down below were hearing a loud trumpet sound and thunderings. And the Lord God had told Moses before all of this had happened that he and all the people, that Moses and all the people were to obey his voice, obey God's voice and to keep his covenant. Then, if they did, God told them that they would be a special treasure to him above all people, and that they would be to him a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And as we come into chapter 20 here, we'll now read some of the things that God had commanded to Moses when he spoke to him. Verse 1 begins here and says, And God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. So right away here, God is reminding Moses of who he is and what he has done for him and the people. Oh, how easy it is to forget the work of God in our lives and his authority over all the earth, right? Even for you and me today, we must be reminded of who God is and all that he has done. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, right? He is our creator, the everlasting God, God Almighty. He is the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Why do I point that out? What I mean by that is he is the God that we read of in the Bible. And as we've been reading, starting in Genesis uh, through this time through the Bible, we We've read about Abraham, we've read about Isaac, we've read about Jacob, we've read about Israel, the children of Israel, as we are doing now, right? This is the God we are referring to. This is the everlasting God, the God who became flesh and mankind beheld his glory. He dwelt among us as the only begotten son, Jesus Christ, who always was and whom today is and forever will be, Jesus Christ is the uh, Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. He came once and he's coming again. And today we have the written word of God that testifies to who Jesus is and all that he has done to redeem us. So we must remind ourselves of these things on a regular basis. And that's why in our Bible studies from time to time, I take, take the time to point this out to you over and over again so that we can be reminded of who God is and what he has done. And the Lord God continues to speak to Moses here in verse three and tells him, you shall have no other gods before me. Now, the thing to keep in mind here is that God is laying down the law, as we would say, in a very firm manner here 
with Moses, right? God is serious about all of this. He's not simply giving advice to Moses, nor is he just making suggestions to Moses. He's not coming along and saying, hey, Moses, you know, maybe you want to think about doing this, or, you know, you might want to think about this or that, right? No, that's not how God is speaking to Moses here. God is giving Moses commandments, and commandments that he expects him to follow. He wants Moses and all the people to be fully focused on him and fully committed to him, not worshiping anyone or anything other than him. How many times in life do we see where in our lives or in the lives of others, right, something becomes far too important to us and it consumes us. Our Lord doesn't want us consumed by anything here on this earth, right? The sky above, the earth below, and all the things that are in it as we now know them will someday melt with a fervent heat and be no more, right? We, we've got to take this thing serious too if we're committed to walking with the Lord. We are to be sure that we are living in a manner that displays that we love the Lord our God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our mind, with all of our strength, because that's what he wants us to do. And as a result of all of that, living in that, we're also loving others as well. And this is what it looks like when God is above all else in your life. That's how you live. And continuing in the vein of just how important God is to be to us. Verse four says, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing mercy to thousands to those who love me and keep my commandments. So this is very simple here. God is a jealous God, meaning that he wants all of his people to be focused on him, not to have other gods, not to have other loves. He wants us focused on him. We don't need to um, worship statues of saints. We shouldn't be a people that travel miles and miles to see a man-made statue move or talk. We shouldn't pray to or worship anyone or anything but God and God alone. We shouldn't be worshiping crystals and rocks and mountains and streams and rivers, the sun, the moon, and the stars, which people do, right? But we should bow down to God and to God alone, right? And we know that today all kinds of worship exist. People worship political leaders, cultural leaders and such, putting pictures of them up in their houses and reading books about how great they think they are, right? But God is a jealous God and him only are we to worship and to lift up. And this is what the Lord God is establishing for this special people of his here, his treasure, as we talked about in chapter 19, of which now, of course, Gentiles are part of God's special people through faith in Jesus Christ. And of course, Jesus Christ is the only way to salvation now for both Jew and Gentile. 
okay, for all the people of the world. Verse seven says, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. And there's no reason to overcomplicate this verse here, right? If you are using the Lord's name for any other thing than prayer, praise, testifying of his goodness, preaching his word, loving others, that's what we should be using his name for, right? If you're using it for any other thing, then you're taking his name in vain, okay? And if, you profess, and if you profess his name over your life, in other words, you profess that he is your Lord, then you need to be living in a reverent manner or else you're taking his name in vain in the way that you live your life. If a person goes around saying, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ, I believe in God, and they tell people that, but yet over here they're cursing and doing all kinds of other stuff. They're taking the name of the Lord in vain. They're not serious about that. I often talk about people when I've married couples. I've said, look, you're going to go and in the name of the Lord, you're going to get married. So there is no putting this thing asunder. There is no divorce in this conversation. Because if you do, you just took the, the, the name of the Lord in vain at your wedding. You, you called his name over your wedding and you put his name in your wedding and everything and then someday you're going to cut that off. Well, that, you're just taking the Lord's name in vain. You're not taking it seriously. So there is no divorce in this when I counsel with a couple. I say, you, we're going to get together if you have problems. I'll be there. We'll talk through them. We'll help through them. Whatever, you're going to seek counsel. You're going to seek help. There is no divorce or otherwise you're taking the Lord's name in vain, right? And, and do you see from what we've read thus far that this is what God is establishing with his people here? He's establishing reverence. Again, he's serious about this. The focus should be on him, respect and honor unto him. But here's the thing, though, as we talk about this. These people aren't going to do it right? They are soon, we're going to see, not in today's study, but we're, we're going to see soon that they're going to be worshiping a golden calf. They're going to be participating in sexual immorality. So they're, they're getting all of this from God, but they're not going to do it. And let's read on, and I'll comment more about that as we go on. But verse 8 says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath day of the Lord, your God. In it you shall do no work, you, nor your son, nor your daughter, nor your male servant, nor your female servant, nor your cattle, nor your stranger who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. So there we see um, four verses, 98 words in those four verses dedicated to the sanctity of the Sabbath. But again, all that God has told Moses thus far in this chapter, all of it was sanctified as well. God wanted them to do all that he said to do. Again, God wasn't simply giving advice or making suggestions to Moses. He was given commandments. He was serious about this. But as time would pass, these people would defy every word that God 
had spoken to them. And as we sit here today, the answer for our sin is not to come up with a way to keep the commandments of God. The answer to our sin is and has always been and always will be Jesus Christ. He's the answer. You see, everything written here in this chapter, every word that God spoke to Moses here was holy and was pure. It was meant to be obeyed and not defiled in any way. Let's read on. I'll comment more on all of this. Verse 12, honor your father and your mother that your days may be long upon the land which the Lord your God has given you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, nor his male servant, nor his female servant, nor his ox, nor his donkey, nor anything that is your neighbor's. Now, all of that sounds very good, doesn't it? We can all agree that all God commanded here in these verses is good and are all the things that we should always obey, right? But do we? Have you ever desired the wealth and abundance that someone else has? Have you ever said, man, I wish I had that property. I wish I had that car. I wish I had that guy's business. I wish I had that type of thing, right? You know someone that has a nice property, a nice car, great husband, great wife, whatever, great business, right? Have you ever desired that kind of thing that someone else has? If so, then you've pretty much violated verse 17 there. And let's look at, let's take this even further and let's look at what Jesus said about some of these things written here. Go ahead and mark this page and turn to the New Testament book of Matthew. It's just the first book of the New Testament, the book of Matthew. And I want to have you turn to Matthew chapter 5. And go ahead and um, when we get to Matthew chapter 5, if you can mark this page as well, because uh, I'm going to bring you back to the book of Matthew uh, in a little while. We're going to come, kind of go back and forth. But we're looking for Matthew chapter 5. In Matthew chapter 5, um, let's look down and start reading at verse 20, where Jesus is speaking, and he says, For I say to you, that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. So what's Jesus referring back to here? He's referring back to what we're reading today in Exodus chapter 20. He says, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whoever says to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council. But whoever says, you fool, shall be in danger of hellfire. Wow, so... In Matthew chapter 5 here, Jesus is amping it up a notch. He's amping up 
He's amping up a notch what we read back in Exodus chapter 20. In verse 21 there, he confirms that if you murder, you will indeed be in danger of the judgment. But he amps it up by saying in verse 22 that you shouldn't even be angry with your brother without cause. This is like falsely accusing someone. And they can take you to court over something like that. And you can face an earthly judge. Jesus doesn't want us doing things like that. And then Jesus brings up the word raka there in verse 22. This is a word that means empty-headed. It's basically like calling someone stupid. Jesus doesn't want us to be that kind of person either. And then to call someone a fool is is to say that they are morally stupid, morally empty, and not worthy of of living, right? People use the term today, gee, damn you, right? They use that word, you know, they use take God's name in vain in that way. That's saying, that's basically when you use those words, you're saying, put a stop to that, to your life. I wish you were dead. I wish you were stopped. And that's what this is expressing here when you use the word full in that manner. You know, it's like a person that, if you look it, look it up, it's a person that is, moral, is morally empty. And you're saying they don't even deserve to live, you know. So Jesus doesn't want us doing any of these kinds of things, right? But here's the question I'll pose for all of our hearts here this morning. Have you ever done this type of thing? Now, I will answer in the affirmative and say that I have indeed done this type of thing, Okay. So I'm going to expound more on all of this, but skip down to verse 27 here in Matthew chapter 5, verse 27. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not commit adultery. Again, Jesus is referring back to Exodus here, right? But I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And we can again ask our own hearts the question, have we ever done this type of thing? Lusted after a woman? Or for women, have you ever lusted after a man? So, is it the word of God, the commandments of God, the commandments of the Lord Jesus Christ? Are these commandments worthy of our obedience? Well, of course they are. They are good. They are pure. They represent a life of holiness, a a life of reverence, right? But the people of old, the people of God that we're reading about in Exodus, who Jesus refers to here, couldn't keep the commandments. And nor can anyone today. We need to be more righteous, Jesus said, than the Pharisees and the Sadducees, right? More righteous than what? is possible while we are here in the flesh. So the answer for unrighteousness, right, is not the works of the flesh, but rather it's the work of the Spirit of God. You see, that's why a person must be born again, born of the Spirit of God, having the Spirit of God indwelling them, and guiding them through this life. You see, 
We're told in the scriptures that all have sinned and all have fallen short of the glory of God. We're told that there is none righteous, no, not one, but yet we have the commandments and Jesus says our righteousness needs to exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees and the Sadducees who were a people that were supposedly dedicated to living that way. And we have to have more than that, right? But you see, we couldn't do it. Mankind couldn't do it. So God made him who had no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That's the answer, is that we become righteous in Jesus Christ. Let me show you that verse this morning that I just quoted to you. I want you to go ahead. We're going to come back to Matthew, but we're going to turn up to the rights a few books and find the book of 2 Corinthians, right? So you have Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, then you'll have Acts and Romans, and then 1 Corinthians, then 2 Corinthians. And we're going to look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And let's look down and read verse 21. For he made him who knew no sin, to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. Again, we all fall short. We all have sin. So therefore, we all need a Savior. In Jesus alone, we become righteous. By faith, we come to Him, professing our need for a Savior. And we also come with the desire to repent of our past sin. We commit our lives to being a disciple of Jesus Christ and we receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit when we do. That is, the Spirit of God comes within us. And all of this is possible because God in His grace and mercy gave to us His only begotten Son who went to the cross and paid the price for our sin. We are made righteous because of His blood, and we are to then walk in Him, to come out of the world, and to be separate, to be led by the Spirit. And when you are led by the Spirit, the Bible says that you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Okay, so we're reading about what Jesus said about the commandments, what the commandments God gave to Moses were, right? But, the only way we can do it is if we're led by the Spirit, born of the Spirit, led by the Spirit. And if you're led by the Spirit, you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. And therefore, you will then be living a life in line with the commandments of God. So the commandments of God weren't bad. The bad part was, is we're in the flesh. We don't keep them all. We fall short. So we need a Savior. And without the Spirit of God, without being born again, without repentance and coming to faith in Jesus Christ, we will never be righteous and therefore never worthy to stand in the presence of God. That's why we need to understand and people today need to understand that religion is not the answer. Jesus Christ is the answer. And we must come to know Jesus Christ within us in order to be saved. 
Because religion, if we look at all the various religions in our world, they all have their own rules, their own doctrines and catechisms and this and that, right, that make up what they are. But religion is not the way to eternal life. Jesus Christ is the only way to eternal life because we all fall short and we can't keep we can't keep the commandments of God, let alone the commandments of man who make up their religions and such, right? But then again, but listen, again, are the commandments good? Yes. Should we endeavor to keep them? Yes, of course we should. But will you be able to do it led by your own flesh, your own abilities? No, you won't. But you can live a righteous life led by the Spirit of God within you. And you can have the Spirit of God within you only when you come to faith in Jesus Christ and you repent and you turn your life to Him. Right? You get there by dying to yourself taking up the cross and following after him and becoming a disciple of his. So is keeping God's commandment mandatory, right, for every born-again believer today? There's kind of, that's kind of a twisted question in a way. Because is it mandatory? Like, hey, you know what? You just broke a commandment. Well, uh, you know, you just called that guy stupid. You know, because you were angry and you just called that guy stupid who's a brother in Christ or something and you got angry and you blew it. We're not under the old covenant anymore. We're under the new covenant, which is in Jesus Christ. You see, when you have come to Christ, you no longer live and and you're dead in every way. And this fleshly life that you now live, you will live it by faith in him who loved you and gave himself for you but you still walk around in the flesh. You still walk around in this body. We can still trip up. We can still stumble, right? You and I will never be more righteous though than we are with Christ in us. So keeping the Sabbath, right? Keeping certain feasts, honoring one day above another, none of that makes us any more righteous than we already are in Christ, See, people add that to their faith, to their religion. They say, well, you know, uh, you have to do this. And they judge others and say, well, if you don't keep this day, if you don't observe it in this way, if you don't eat these things or do this or do that or do that, then you're not living right. You're not righteous. No, my righteousness is not in the things I do. I've already fallen short. I already fail in that way. My righteousness is in Christ alone and what he has has done. Jesus alone is our peace with God. Jesus alone is our mediator. Jesus alone is the way, the truth, and the life. All that we read about with the children of Israel was just a shadow of what was to come. Today, a person can only be complete, made perfect, that is, in Jesus Christ. And there's a lot of scriptures that back all that I'm telling you here this morning. I'm not showing you them this morning, but I encourage you to seek them out. But everything I'm telling you is scriptural. Read the writings of Paul the Apostle in the New Testament. That's where most of what I've just spoken to you comes from. But let's go ahead now and turn back to the book of Exodus chapter 20. And pick it up in verse 18. Now it says, now all the people witnessed the thunderings, the lightning, 
flashes, the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking. And when the people saw it, they trembled and stood afar off. Then they said to Moses, you speak with us and we will hear, but let not God speak with us lest we die. So these people had a fear of God after what they just saw happening, okay? And Moses, verse 20 says, and Moses said to the people, do not fear for God has come to test you and that his fear may be before you so that you may not sin. So Moses is saying, look, the almighty, the all-powerful God is showing you just how almighty and all-powerful he is. And you should learn from what you've seen here that he is almighty and that he is all-powerful. And you should learn that you should not sin. But again, but as we see here though, these people wanted nothing to do with this amazingly powerful God. So they wanted someone between them and God. They wanted to put someone between them and God. And they would go on to live that way for many years just as many religions do today, right? They have popes, they have priests, they have pastors that they want to put between them and God. Oh, we don't want to keep, you know, I I want to put all that on my pastor. I don't don't want to be open before God. I don't want him to see me. I, I I just want them to see my pastor and I'll put all that on him, right? But the word of God tells us today in 1 Timothy 2.5 that there's only one God and one mediator between God and man. And that is Jesus Christ. He's the only mediator between us and God. I always remind people when I teach as a pastor or I do any pastor type duties, I don't stand in your place between you and God. There's no cushion. I don't bring no cushion between you and God. I'm just a brother in the Lord that is there to offer you help through the gifting of the Holy Spirit that he gives me, whatever it may be. But you can go directly to God yourself. And you are only made righteous through faith in Jesus Christ. There's one God and one mediator between God and man. And that is Jesus Christ, right? So what these people were doing here and the way they're establishing this thing wasn't the way that God was ultimately going to have it to be. Ultimately, it was going to be Jesus and Jesus alone, okay? But this is just a point in time where we're at as we study the scriptures here. So verse 21, so the people stood afar off, but Moses drew near the thick darkness where God was. Then the Lord said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the children of Israel, You have seen that I have talked with you from heaven. You shall not make anything to be with me. Gods of silver or gods of gold, you shall not make for yourselves. Again, I'll say this to you this morning, that people have many gods today. Far too many for me to list here this morning. In other words, things that they worship and that they hold dear to their hearts. People, places, things that that people lift up and elevate to an important place in their lives. And And when something changes with those people or those people let you down or circumstances change, these people get depressed because they're elevating somebody. 
They're lifting somebody up or they're lifting some type of system up or whatever it may be, and they're not lifting up God as the one and only in their life. For many people, their, their God is money today, right? They give all their time and all their effort to obtain it, and as a, re, as a result, they serve it. And in, and in reality, the money ends up owning them. Okay. Now, remember earlier I said to you to put some type of marker there in Matthew because we're going to go back to it. Well, now we are. Let's, let's go back to Matthew chapter 6 this time, though. We're going to look at Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6, and we'll look down and start reading in verse 24. It's Jesus speaking here, and he says, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Now, mammon is a word that speaks of treasure or riches, treasure and riches, right? Treasure and riches that would be opposed to God. You see, we are simply to be stewards of all that we have. If you have excess money and a brother or a sister is destitute or has need, you should give to them expecting nothing in return because the money is not a God to you, nor does it belong to you. As a steward, what you have belongs to the God that is your provider, right? And these verses tell us how God wants us to live, right? Verse 25, therefore I say to you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Now, how many people today worry about their life? How many people make sure that their retirement is funded while other brothers and sisters in Christ are doing without basic necessities? Are there brothers and sisters in Christ with empty pantries while our, while our pantries are overstocked? Brothers and sisters who can't pay their rent while we've got money sitting in savings? See, God doesn't want us storing up. He doesn't want us thinking about our own needs like that, worrying about all that. He wants us trusting in Him on a daily basis. Verse 26 continues and says, Look at the birds of the air, for they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And the obvious answer to that is yes. You are of more value to God than the birds of the air, right? Which of you, verse 27, which of you by worrying can add one cubit to his stature? So why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. And yet I say to you that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Now, if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? 
Therefore, do not worry, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For all these things the Gentiles seek. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things, but seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about its own things. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. So this is all a pretty cut and dry teaching from Jesus here, isn't it? You are to trust God for each and every day, not to store up and to gather, but to disperse and trust. Because when you store and gather, you are making gods of silver and gold that you are putting before God himself. We are to live today in a manner that shows we are seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, living like Jesus did, just passing through on our way to eternal life. And as we flip back now to Exodus chapter 20 again, verse 24 of Exodus 20 continues and says, An altar of the earth you shall make for me, and you shall sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and your peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen. In every place where I record my name, I will come to you and I will bless you. And if you make me an altar of stone, you shall not build it of hewn stone. For if you use your tool on it, you have profaned it. Nor shall you go up by steps to my altar that your nakedness may not be exposed on it. So God is establishing with the children of Israel here a very solemn occasion, right? There was to be a deep sincerity in the way they were to sacrifice to God in that day. Again, we're not under this old covenant. We're under the new covenant now, right? But God would bless them if they did so. By not touching the stone with their hand, it would remain pure. By not climbing the steps to the altar in their robes, their nakedness would not be exposed, right? So again, we see a reverence being taught by God here, a graveness, a dignified ceremony, a solemn occasion. This is what God required of them because he wanted them to know that he was majestic, that he was their God, that he was above all else, and that he was worthy of all submission, all honor, and all praise. Today, the same exists in Jesus Christ, but it's not by our works that we come to God today. It's because of the finished work of Jesus Christ on this earth that we have the ability to approach God. You see, as I showed you in our last study, you and I, like I've said a couple times here, we're not, and I want to remind you of it, we're not of this old covenant. We do not come to Mount Sinai, the place of the law. We have come to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant in his blood. And I'm quoting to you there from Hebrews, okay? We've not come to Mount Sinai, the law. We've come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. In other words, here's how you have a relationship with God. It's because of the shed blood of Jesus, because of what he did for us, right? But what do you do with the blood of Jesus? Or better said, how should we live as a result 
of all that Jesus has done for us. We should not trample the Son of God underfoot and count the blood of the covenant by which we were sanctified as a common thing. That's what Hebrews 10.29 says. It says if we do that, if we trample the Son of God underfoot and count the blood of the covenant as a common thing, then we are insulting the Spirit of grace. Okay? So we're to live righteously. We're to live holy. But not because of the works we do, because of the Holy Spirit within us who teaches us to live in that way. Remember, Titus 2, 12-14 says, that the grace of God teaches us to deny ungodliness and worldly lust. So when a person says, well, I'm saved by grace, well, then, then we have to question ourselves. If we say that, we have to say, well, then am I denying ungodliness and am I denying worldly lust? Because if I'm not, then I'm not under grace because that's what grace teaches us. It also teaches us, uh, Titus 2 says, to live soberly, to live righteously and godly in this present age. Again, if we're not doing this, we're not under grace. Because it says that we're looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. That's what the grace of God teaches us, that we're to be that type of people. So you see, good works doesn't get a person saved, but the person who is saved will be known for good works. So honor the Lord God with your life. Honor the Lord God with all of your possessions, all that you have and with the praise of your mouth, and seek first the kingdom of God as Jesus told us to do. Now, I would like to close this morning by us reading together from 1 Peter chapter 1. So take a moment, if you have to look it up in the front of your Bible for a page number, let's find 1 Peter chapter 1. First Peter chapter 1, and we're going to look down and we're going to read verses 13 through 16. Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children not conforming yourself to the former lust as in your ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct because it is written, be holy for I am holy. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, again, God, we've seen your word today. We've studied your word. Will we be forgetful hearers, or will we be doers of the work? 
God, your Holy Spirit, through your word, gives us the opportunity to grow in you, to learn of you, and to live this life for you, Lord. May we recognize who you are and all that you have done for us, Lord Jesus. And may we desire to be holy, to walk in righteousness, to honor you with all that we have, all that we own, Lord, because the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. It's all yours, Lord God. May we honor you in every step we take, everything we do, Lord, the way we uh, treat each other as husband and wives, Lord, the way we treat each other as family members, co-workers and neighbors, in all that we do, Lord, in all that we have. May we look out for each other and not be selfish and self-centered, Lord. But may we live like you, Jesus, as we walk through this earth. Fill us with the power of your Spirit. We know that your Spirit indwells us as we trust in you by faith, Lord. So we love you and we thank you for this time again in your word, your will to be done. In Jesus' name, amen.